In the wake of the Civil War, as surrender turned into reconstruction and slavery turned into sharecropping, many black Americans began a voyage north in what's now known as the Great Migration. These recently freed slaves sought economic opportunity in the industrialized urban centers in the Midwest and the Northeast. One area that saw a boom in new African-American immigrants from the rural South was New York City, and more specifically, the neighborhood of Harlem in Manhattan. While the levels of racism were less apparent than in the rural South, blacks still faced many forms of discrimination, with a major one being military service. However, in 1917, the Selective Service Act required all men ages 21 to 30 to register for the draft, including African Americans. Many black Americans were excited to be able to literally fight to gain the respect of their fellow countrymen. If that took fighting in a world war, so be it. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium, episode 43, The Harlem Hellfighters. From Reconstruction to the start of the Second World War, racism ran rampant in the United States. Anti-black violence, lynchings, segregation, legal racial discrimination, and expressions of white supremacy all increased during this time. Despite black soldiers and black units playing large roles in combat in all of America's previous wars, by the turn of the century there was still a wariness to provide blacks an opportunity to serve in the U.S. military. However, a group of black advocates, including Booker T. Washington, pressured the War Department to include a black representative in order to maximize the amount of troops the U.S. could provide for the war effort. Eventually, Emmett J. Scott was appointed Special Advisor of Black Affairs to the Secretary of War, Newton D. Baker. As the highest-ranking African-American in the War Department, Emmett Scott hired an all-star staff that included some of the best black business leaders, advocates, and journalists out there. Now, I eventually might do a whole episode about civil rights and the many complex problems facing the movement, because a common misconception about fighting racism and discrimination is that the problem is an entirely moral one. Morality, of course, plays a part, but in order to change the hearts and minds of white America, especially during the turn of the century, you don't need an ethics textbook. You need a top-notch PR campaign. Although many African Americans were eager to fight in the war, they were often turned away from military service. Emmett Scott and his advisors sought to change that. In 1913, the governor of New York, Charles Whitman, Hearing of the success of the segregated 10th Cavalry Unit known as the Buffalo Soldiers, decided to begin forming a unit of black soldiers from New York. Black advocates that were part of Emmett Scott's PR machine began recruiting soldiers from the boroughs of New York City. They took out newspaper ads and posted posters and gave out pamphlets. They found the most success in Manhattan, where dock workers, mechanics, barbers, and jazz musicians all accepted the call of duty. But the way black recruits were treated by whites soon worried some of the black advocates. W.E.B. Du Bois stated, quote, Let us not hesitate. Let us, while this war lasts, forget our special grievances and close our ranks shoulder to shoulder with our own black and white fellow citizens and the allied nations that are fighting for democracy. Unquote. His call to close ranks and unite fell on deaf ears. 
the Marines outright refused any black soldiers at all. The Navy allowed in only a select few, so the vast majority ended up as infantry in the U.S. Army. The New York Army National Guard unit was reconstituted as the 15th New York Infantry Regiment. The black soldiers from the city assembled and began training in upstate New York. Young, strapping men from Harlem soon learned the basics of military manners and regalia. These black recruits learned the chain of command, how to properly salute, and how to march in step with one another. Soon they were ready to receive training in combat, and for that, they were sent to a training base called Camp Wadsworth in Spartanburg, North Carolina in October of 1917. Camp Wadsworth was deep in the rural south. Many of the residents were ex-Confederate soldiers. I don't think I need to explain why sending a battalion of all inner-city black soldiers into the heart of old Confederate territory was not going to end well. This predicament led many to believe that the upper military brass was trying one of two things. They were either trying to incite violence so they could simply have an excuse to disband the unit, or they were trying to test the discipline of new troops surrounded by a white populace that would prefer to see them lynched. Either way, things got off to a rough start. Immediately, many local shops closed their doors to any black customers. There was also news that a unit of Alabama National Guardsmen were preparing to attack the black battalion. A white officer of the New York unit named Hamilton Fish handed out live ammunition and had the whole battalion march on the Alabama encampment. Upon arriving, he walked in accompanied by a 6'6", 260-pound black heavyweight boxer named George Cotton and offered to fight any officer that would have him, adding that he brought along an enlisted man who would fight any two of the Southerners. As one might guess, there were no takers. Later, a black soldier was told he wouldn't be able to purchase a newspaper because the store didn't sell to men like him. Upon hearing the news, some white soldiers, many who had trained with the black unit, called for a boycott of any store in Spartanburg that refused to sell to any of their fellow soldiers, saying, quote, They're our buddies, and we won't buy for men who won't treat them fairly. Unquote. The black soldiers of the New York's 369th Infantry Division were given an insignia patch of a black rattlesnake over a blue shield. Many divisions and battalions received jubilant send-offs before they crossed the ocean to join in on the war to end all wars. When leaders from the 369th All-Black Regiment asked if they could be in the parade with the 42nd Infantry Division, nicknamed the Rainbow Battalion, the commanding officers promptly refused and stated that, quote, black is not a color of the rainbow, unquote. Adversity like this produced a sense of unit cohesion, an us-against-them attitude, even if the them was most of the U.S. Army. Unlike other colored regiments where black soldiers had little respect or affection for their white officers, the men of the 369th knew their white officers had their backs and understood their predicament. The Hellfighters even had many black officers as well, at a time when the War Department preferred having colored troops led by an either all-white or an all-black officer corps. They arrived in Brest, France on New Year's Day, 1918. The 369th Division was initially pressed into the service of supply, as were the majority of the 400,000-plus colored troops conscripted for the war effort, 
laying railroad tracks, draining swamps, unloading ships. The officers of the Black Divisions campaigned, writing letters to the American Expeditionary Force headquarters, pleading that his men should be allowed to see combat. General John Pershing, the leader of the AEF, had for some time refused all requests from the French and British to give them reinforcements, arguing that his troops weren't ready and that he wasn't about to allow American troops to fight under a foreign flag. But the French army, by 1918, was both depleted and demoralized. They had taken enormous losses over the course of the war, and 24,000 French troops had just been tried and convicted of mutiny. To make matters more dire, the Bolsheviks, after taking power in Russia in November 1917, had negotiated a separate peace with the Central Powers, allowing the Germans to transfer a million troops from the Eastern to the Western Front. Pershing understood that the Germans intended to mount a spring offensive in 1918, a final push to seize Paris and negotiate a treaty on favorable terms before the Americans arrived in sufficient numbers to stop them. General Pershing, knowing that were he to deploy colored American troops with adjacent white American troops, trouble was sure to follow, he gave in and gave the French eight regiments of colored soldiers. The 369th Division was eager to join the fight. They had been bored doing manual labor and simple menial tasks. While they knew every action was important for the war effort, they knew they wouldn't gain the respect of their white countrymen unless they saw combat. When they were essentially handed over to France, they were excited to finally get to see some action. The French, however, were ecstatic to finally have some help and truly treated the black soldiers as equals. You see, in desperation, the luxury of prejudice is quickly lost. When you're fighting in the trenches, the color of a soldier's skin matters not. All that matters is that he has your back. Additionally, the black units from France's West African colonies, such as Morocco and Senegal, had performed incredibly well in battle. Some French soldiers even wrote that Africans may be genetically better at warfare based on how savagely they fought. The 369th Division was welcomed with open arms. They wore their American uniforms, but were issued French belts and French helmets. They were assigned to a French division and replaced a devastated battalion that had suffered horrendous casualties from German artillery and assaults. The Black Replacement Battalion arrived in the trenches in early May. Butchers, mechanics, and jazz singers from Harlem relieved groups of French soldiers completely covered in mud and blood some of them crazy-eyed, shell-shocked, others missing limbs. The harsh reality of war stared them directly in the face. The American soldiers using French gear took their position in the trenches. The dug-in positions that would be their home for the next several months smelled of uncleaned latrines. In many places, mud and blood mixed to form a sickly black sludge that no one had the willpower or stomach to remove from the trenches. A low, artificial thunder of enemy artillery boomed to the north. Soon, the storm of artillery was upon them, raining down shells. Soil splashed into the trenches as many eardrums ruptured. Those who lost their hearing may have actually been the lucky ones, as they were spared the screams and cries of their dying comrades. German shock troops began advancing. The order was given to begin firing at them in no man's land. A dock worker gulped and rose his rifle over the wall of the trench. A student, just 17 years old, caught a stray bullet next to him. 
With each squeeze of the trigger, the men of the battalion remembered the German propaganda dropped upon them that explained that Imperial Germany had done no harm to blacks, and that the black units should really turn their rifles on the other racist American units, who were their true enemies. The soldiers knew that the German propaganda made a point, but they fought ferociously anyway, intent on proving their worth to their countrymen. The 369th Division was incredibly effective in combat, and soon earned a nickname that they rallied under, the Harlem Hellfighters. Within the first month of fighting, two soldiers endured some of the most brutal close-quarters combat of the war. One night, on May 14, 1918, Privates Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts were manning an observation post in No Man's Land when they noticed a German raiding party approaching fast. They yelled to alert the others and jumped back into their trenches, but the German shock troops were already upon them. Henry Johnson threw several grenades and shot several of the two dozen approaching Germans. Needham Roberts fired until his clip was dry, but was soon overran and taken hostage and was being dragged towards the enemy trenches. Johnson's gun jammed, but he continued the fight, swinging his rifle like a club and downing two more Germans. He then pulled out a bolo knife and climbed up into no man's land to save his friend from interrogation and certain death. He rushed across the artillery blasted no man's land and tackled one of the Germans and killed another with his bolo knife. He picked up his friend and watched about a dozen German soldiers retreat back to their line in the moonlight. Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts returned to their trenches where more of the Harlem Hellfighters had arrived to see several dead and wounded Germans. Johnson himself suddenly realized that he had sustained over 21 injuries. He collapsed and was taken to a medical tent. They had successfully repelled a raiding party of about two dozen enemy soldiers single-handedly. Tales of Henry Johnson's heroism spread quickly and the Harlem Hellfighters gave him the nickname The Black Death. A famous war correspondent named Irvin S. Cobb, who would eventually go on to host the first Academy Awards, caught wind of this story. He was a prominent humorist and comedian who never missed an opportunity for a racist jab against black Americans. However, upon hearing this story, Irvin Cobb had a change of heart. He wrote this in the Saturday Evening Post, quote, If ever proof was needed, which it is not, that the color of a man's skin has nothing to do with the color of his soul, this pair, then and there, offered it in abundance. They were soldiers who wore their uniforms with a smartened pride, who expressed a sincere, heartfelt inclination to get a whack at their foes. As a result of what our black soldiers are going to do in this war, a word that has been uttered billions of times, sometimes in derision, sometimes in hate, a word that I'm sure never fell on black ears without leaving a sting is going to have a new meaning for all of us, and that hereafter, the word N-I-G-G-E-R will just be another way of spelling the word American." Unquote. While that's a strange way to put it, his story resonated with Americans. With Henry Johnson's incredible heroism, more seeds of equality had been planted. And this horrified some of the racist leaders in the U.S. military. They were so worried that France's equal treatment and the tales of the Harlem Hellfighters' courage might lead to more equal treatment back in America that they decided they had to take action. 
they issued a pamphlet to French forces imploring officers to not treat blacks equally, as they might expect that sort of equality when they returned home. The pamphlet also explained that the inferior nature of the black troops included dangerous and rapist tendencies. The French responded to the racist pamphlet by promptly awarding the Croix de Guerre, the Cross of War, their highest medal of bravery, to every single member of the Harlem Hellfighters. The Harlem Hellfighters were one of the most successful Allied battalions in World War I, participating in the Second Battle of the Marne, the Argonne Offensive, and they were the first Allied unit to reach the Rhine River in German territory. The armistice was signed on November 11, 1918. The Harlem Hellfighters soon made their way north to leave the desolate trenches that they served in for so long. They weren't greeted by medals or award ceremonies. They simply boarded ships and returned home to New York. However, not everyone left. Many of the Hellfighters saw the way the French treated them and compared that to the racism that they would endure at home. So they decided to stay. France also wanted many of the Hellfighters to stay for a reason that could be summed up in one word. Jazz. The U.S. military allowed the Harlem Hellfighters to bring any of their musical instruments to the front in an effort to improve morale. One of the most prominent of the Hellfighters to bring jazz to Europe during and after the war was a man by the name of James Reese Europe. He was a jazz superstar back home. After a performance in Carnegie Hall prior to the war, the New York Times remarked, quote, These musicians are beginning to develop an art all of their own, based on their own folk material." Unquote. James Reese Europe was the most famous black musician in the entire United States, and despite all of his fame and notoriety, he volunteered to head to the front because of his sense of duty to the United States. For a modern perspective, that would be like Jay-Z or Kanye West heading to the front lines of the War on Terror today. James Europe enthralled audiences, first military, then civilian. He and his band played all along the front lines, raising morale wherever they went. After the war's conclusion, the black musicians toured in Paris and got to see the lights in Parisians' eyes when they were introduced to a wild, rebellious new genre for the first time. Jazz and ragtime spread through Paris like wildfire. One of the band members, Nobel Sissel, wrote that Paris had been, quote, infected with ragtimitis, unquote. Many of the Harlem Hellfighters stayed in France for good. The rest returned to New York City right after the war. While they received no honors or recognition from the military, they returned to Harlem as conquering heroes. The entire neighborhood lined the streets and cheered as the Harlem Hellfighters marched down the street in an enormous parade. A few months after the war, James Reese Europe returned home for a new tour in the United States. He was more popular and more confident than ever. In February of 1919, he said, quote, I have come from France more firmly convinced than ever that Negroes should write Negro music. We have our own racial feeling, and if we try to copy whites, we will simply make bad copies. We won France by playing music which was ours, not a pale imitation of others. And if we are to develop in America, we must develop jazz along our own lines." Unquote. In May of 1919, when James Europe was touring the United States, he and one of his bandmates got into a minor scuffle, 
where Europe was stabbed with its small knife in the neck. The injury appeared very, very minor, and James Europe told the bandmates to continue their set. However, later in the hospital, doctors couldn't stop the bleeding, and James Reese Europe passed away. News of his death spread fast. People all around the country were devastated. A war hero, a talented musician, and a pioneer of a popular new genre of music was suddenly gone. Fellow composer W.C. Handy wrote, quote, The man who had just come through the baptism of war's fire and steel without a mark had been stabbed by one of his own musicians. The sun was in the sky. The new day promised peace. But all the suns had gone down for Jim Europe. And Harlem will never again seem quite the same. Unquote. Lieutenant James Reese Europe's funeral procession was the first public funeral for an African American in New York City. He is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Despite the loss of a prominent hellfighter and famous musician, Harlem was empowered by the heroism of their returning hometown unit. Over the next decade, Harlem became a flourishing center of African American culture. Strangely, Jazz music didn't really catch on in the United States until France fell in love with it after the Great War. Soon, jazz music was a staple of American life. During this time, Harlem flourished and produced some of the greatest art of the era. This period is now commonly referred to as the Harlem Renaissance. However, all this progress was met with plenty of opposition. The biggest fears of the racist military leaders were now coming true. Black people were starting to demand equal treatment. The racists fought back hard. A song titled, How You Gonna Keep Em Down Now That They've Seen Paris, was sung in jest, implying that black soldiers would now be reticent to be kept down after serving in France in the war. The period after the First World War saw huge increases in Jim Crow laws and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Many blacks that had served their country valiantly in the war returned home to hate, bigotry, and systematic racism. But the story of the Harlem Hellfighters teaches us more about the racism in the military institution in the North, not the South. You see, during the Spanish-American and Mexican-American wars, many Northern generals would grant plenty of awards and medals to black Southern soldiers. But they didn't do it because they wanted to truly honor those soldiers. They did it despite the South a way to rub their noses in it, a way to say, we won, we freed the slaves. But the North wasn't planning on treating them equally, at least not yet. Though the Harlem Hellfighters wore their French medals with pride, their own country's military neglected to give the unit the honors they deserved. Even the war hero Henry Johnson, who had mesmerized Americans with his bravery, didn't even receive a Purple Heart despite sustaining over 21 injuries. Henry Johnson did the best he could after the war. He was a national celebrity for a time. His various injuries, including a massive piece of shrapnel lodged between two bones in his foot, kept him from working. However, he was offered work giving lectures about the supposed racial harmony in the trenches. When Henry Johnson would take the stage, he decided that he wouldn't lie, and he told the truth about the rampant racism he and the other Harlem Hellfighters experienced in the trenches. He was not asked to speak again. Henry Black Death Johnson faded into obscurity and died of tuberculosis less than a decade after the war, 
without a penny to his name. Nearly 100 years after he served in World War I, President Barack Obama posthumously awarded Henry Johnson the Medal of Honor. The story of the Harlem Hellfighters is one of overcoming impossible odds, both in combat and in society. The men who served in the Hellfighters showed that they would do just about anything to prove their worth to their countrymen, even if that meant fighting in a world war within a military that essentially stacked the odds against them and failed to acknowledge their heroism. But the Harlem Hellfighters and their incredible success planted more seeds of equality. And as those seeds sprouted, some tried hard to keep them from growing. But as the saying goes, how are you going to keep them down now that they've seen Paris? Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can support Historium on Patreon for as little as $1 per month. And for $5 a month, you can get an extra bonus episode each and every month. The link to my Patreon is right there in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>